0: Hello and welcome to our second podcast on migration, refugee and population issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. On April 19, 2015, media all around the world broke news that a boat had capsized in the Mediterranean Sea, killing 800 people attempting to migrate to Europe. The tragedy, which the UN Refugee Agency says might be the largest loss of life during a migrant crossing to Europe, is unfortunately not a new incident. Increasingly, hundreds of thousands of migrants are risking their lives to sail the Mediterranean in search of a better life. Many, however, perish during that journey. The International Organization for Migration estimates that globally, 4,077 migrants died at sea in 2014. IOM believes that, of this number, 3,072 migrants died while crossing the Mediterranean, compared with an estimate of 700 in 2013. It is expected that migrant deaths by sea will continue to rise in 2015. Already this year, IOM estimates that 1,770 migrants have died by sea since January. Following the deaths of about 600 migrants when two ships sank off the coast of Lampedusa in 2013, the Italian government instituted Mare Nostrum, a search-and-rescue mission to help those trying to reach Europe. The rest of Europe, however, did not pledge funding to continue the Mare Nostrum operations, and the program was forced to shut down one year later. In its place is Operation Triton, which falls under the European Union's border agency Frontex. According to reports, Triton has significantly less funding and was designed to police the Mediterranean rather than to provide humanitarian assistance. For this second episode, CMS's Executive Director, Donald Kerwin, speaks with Martin Shrieb, director of the Migrant Offshore Aid Station, a humanitarian search and rescue operation founded by Christopher and Regina Katrombone to provide support to vessels in the Mediterranean in need of assistance. During a 26-year military career, Mr. Shreerab has led expeditions that deployed aid into war-torn Kosovo as commander of the Armed Forces of Malta and he has overseen many search-and-rescue missions as Malta's Chief of Defense. Mr. Srirabh has been Malta's representative on the European Union Military Committee, as well as at the European Defense Agency, the EU Institute for Security Studies, the EU Satellite Center, and NATO's Partnership for Peace program. He has also served as defense attaché in Belgium. We begin our interview. With Mr. Girab's description of the founding of the Migrant Offshore Aid Station by Christopher and Regina Catrambone.
1: We're a foundation set up by an American uh, maritime um, Italian in 2013. They were out at sea. Um, they saw a floating jacket, asked the captain, Who does this belong to? We we're close to Lampedusa, and the captain said, Probably this, that person is, a, is not with us anymore. This coincided with the visit of the Pope to Lampedusa, his first visit. Um, in Lampedusa in 2013 when he launched a direct appeal to those people that have the ability to do something. And uh, Chris and Regina are both practicing Catholic. Um, they picked up this challenge and they set up Migrant Offshore Aid Station to help people who feel compelled to die out at sea.
0: According to Reb, the Migrant Offshore Aid Station is not required to obtain permission to provide search and rescue assistance. And while some have expressed that search and rescue should be the responsibility of state governments, migrant offshore aid stations' leaders view search and rescue as a shared responsibility, and the authority to conduct its operations is supported by international maritime law.
1: We have all the legal backing. Um, Every boat out there has a legal obligation to assist boats in distress, so that is not an issue whatsoever.
0: Located in northern Africa, Libya has often served as an optimal starting point for migrants from Africa to begin their journeys across the Mediterranean Sea. Migrants attempting this central Mediterranean route are typically led towards Malta and the Italian island of Lampedusa.
1: We know where these people are leaving from. The, the Tunisia side and the Benghazi side has almost dried up. It's now the great majority. Is from uh, Zintan and uh, Tripoli for the simple reason that this is the closest road route to Lampedusa, and this is Libya is is where the traffickers can work with impunity. Um, the crossing is deadly. I mean, it is what it is. I'm not going to go into numbers of how many people died, um, doing the crossing. What I'm going to say is that this year is going to be much worse. We have no doubt about it. 1,700 have died, um, this year already. When you compare that to last year. Um, the, the, the increase is, I don't know how many fold. If you also factor in that, many people will, many more people will cross this year. This is um, without any doubt. The the situation in Syria is what it is. It's getting from back to worse. There are millions and millions of refugees in Turkey, in Lebanon and in, in Jordan. A small percentage of these will attempt to do the crossing and nothing will stop them from doing the crossing. We increasingly keep on saying to also in the international media and the, the authorities, we should stop or we should talk less about pull factors and talk a bit, a bit more about push factors.
0: Over the course of its operations, the Migrant Offshore Aid Station has experienced an increase in migrants requiring rescue. And it has identified other areas in which migrants need additional assistance, particularly in the post-rescue phase. As a result, the organization aims to expand their services.
1: Last year we went out in uncharted waters. We didn't know whether the authorities will support us, we didn't know whether the Rescue Coordination Centre will call us for assistance. On the second day we got the first call from the Rome Rescue Coordination Centre. After that we got 150 calls and we, under the direction of the Rome Rescue Coordination Centre, we rescued 3,000 people. This year, it's going to be bigger. Um, this year, we're not out at sea for 60 days, we're out at sea for 180 days. We have teamed up with Doctors Without Borders, um, uh, because we feel that um, we need to give more attention to the post-rescue phase of the operation. And no, we really needed to revise nothing in terms of search and rescue. But in terms of post-rescue care, last year we had a clinic, we had doctors, we had, uh, um, we had also, um, paramedics. However, we realized that when you have 300 people on your boat for 36 hours, there is so much more you can do. You are the first entity that these people are encountering, particularly if they're sub-Saharan Africans, but because they would have started their journey months before. The first friendly phase. So, you have them for 36 hours this is where you can do real unhindered untainted analysis to determine their needs and what we want to do this year is not only look after their physiological needs but also if there is we're going to have psychologists on board to speak to them to identify who is most vulnerable not in terms of broken legs and broken arms and burns but in terms of everything else what we do at the end, we always disembark and hand over to the authorities. Last year, it was always the Italian authorities. On some occasions, we disembarked in, in, in Sicily, in Porto or in on Pozzallo, or else on Italian statecraft.
0: Schwerup's team of rescuers and paramedics are equipped with a 40-meter vessel, two inflatable boats, and two drones. Um, we
1: are the first entity, I think, in the world who's using this caliber drones for a humanitarian mission. I mean, drones are associated with destruction and war. We said no. This is a dual-use uh, peace kit. We use it to save lives. That that drone can cover an area of 900 square kilometers in six hours. Can go out away from the from the boat up to a hundred. Um, kilometers and come back with information. Not only come back, but also transmit information that it is seeing. And it can fly up to ten thousand feet. Um, the operation costs about uh, five hundred fifty thousand to six hundred thousand dollars a month. Over half of that is is the drones. But the drones again allow us so much reach. We are able to deploy the drone in ten minutes, whereas if if a maritime patrol craft has has to deploy from Malta or from Sicily, it's going to take at least an hour and a half and another hour for that for that uh, aircraft to reach the area of operation. We're there in 10 minutes. So can, when
2: I, can I just ask, do the drones allow you to locate these boats? Is that what you're doing, or to yes. see what shape they're in, or
1: exactly what do you use them um, for? Both, both, um, because it allows us to locate. Um uh, so we are both reactive and proactive when we do if we're doing patrolling and we see a boat um, uh, at what you refer to as a target of interest, straight away, we inform the rescue coordination centre is wrong in Rome because we might be, our boat might be sixty kilometers away from that uh, from that vessel of interest, and the rescue coordination center has a much wider picture of what is available out there, so they might send a boat which is closer. That's us being proactive. Us being reactive is getting the call from the Rescue Coordination Center. Um, getting the call from other, other people. I don't know whether you know who Father Moses Zarai is. He's an Eritrean priest. He is now in, 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 in Switzerland. And sometimes he calls us. He also, the minute he calls us, he also calls the Rome Rescue Coordination Center. Um, and then we inform the rescue coordination center and they would tell us okay he, we, gets, he gets calls from the migrants directly on the he get, yes saying we need we need assistance uh, we need assistance um, if they're lucky they have a sat phone if they pay for it they have a
2: sat phone
0: although the organization is independent and privately funded the migrant offshore aid station works closely with rescue coordination centers which are run by government agencies such as coast guards and considers itself a member and representative of civil society
1: and what our presence out there is saying in terms of advocacy now we're not the foundation who points fingers Uh, we're not about that because we feel that the best way to assist the person who is in distress is by coordinating and cooperating with the authorities who, who have a, who have a legal responsibility to coordinate the rescue. So, um, however, our presence out there is also sending a very strong message to governments, to decision making. We represent civil society and civil society is saying through us, enough. We need to do something about it. So we are also, I mean, our, our, um, our presence out there is again, and, Today I heard, I don't know, I'm still getting a bit of feedback. It appears that Germany will be sending uh, a navy ship uh, in the area to to assist, either one or two. Again, so there is some sort of, um even at a political level, I think there is now a, a realization that uh, people just should not, cannot die out at sea. Um, and that it is a crisis and it needs to be dealt with straight away. Our presence there is to represent civil society, the man in the street who is saying, OK, um, as long as one person dies out there, we're going to be out there because the value we give to the life of that person is 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 um, cannot be, um, it, it's not palpable, it's, uh, it, it's there, it is what it is. So again,
2: um... so civil society has very strong feelings about the politics of this, mm-hmm. kind of what states are doing and aren't doing. And you must have them too. I mean, what do you think of the the EU meeting that took place on April 23rd and kind of the solutions, which it sounds to me like it's tripling the amount of funding for the work in the Mediterranean through the Triton program. Yes. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of kind of burden-sharing in terms of taking in the refugees either. So it's kind of enforcement-oriented, stopping people, containing them in their country, stopping them from coming, perhaps trying to do something with the smugglers. There's not a whole lot of relief valves in that in that plan, it doesn't seem to... No.
1: Make- in fact, it, out of the ten points, um, search and rescue features, in a veiled way, only the first point. Um, uh, and what it says is that Um, uh, Triton will, yes, have its budget tripled. But again, what they, what, what is not said is that, that it has been halved before. So when you triple, you're almost going to the back level, to to the same level as before. The issue is with, with, with Triton is its area of operation. Triton is operating within 30 nautical miles of, of Libya. And while I have no doubt, that when the rescue coordination center will call upon the Triton vessels to assist, they will assist. But it is not enough. Um, we are we we deploy our boat, and we deploy the, the operation starts on Saturday. So we go out at sea on Saturday up until the end of October at the least, and we head straight uh, um, close to the Buryol field. so we're we're about four to mile miles um, uh, north of Libya. So and that area of operation we. We discussed thoroughly, I was in Italy um, uh, about 10 days ago for a discussion with the Rescue Coordination Centre, and I said, okay, tell us where we will be most needed. And that is where we will be most needed, down there, not closer um, to, to Europe. And this, obviously, we think of it from a search and rescue perspective, from a saving lives at sea perspective. For us, border control is, is not an issue.
2: Can I ask about your your own background? I mean, but you were doing a lot of rescue and humanitarian missions in Kosovo, and also search and rescue. And that's kind of your professional background. How did you get into this work?
1: Well, yes, but also before or in line with my military background, I have also an academic background, which okay. is in sociology, in the social sciences, in cultural studies, and in international relations. So I have always tried to combine, even in 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 my military life, I have always thought that. That kind of background, that that my interest has helped me greatly in managing and leading people. Yes, I spent twenty six years in the um, military, the last three of which as Malta's chief of defence. Um, and again, in Malta, Malta is a small place. the The forces are about two thousand three hundred strong, and we're a composite force. So when you say the armed forces, we do issues which in other countries would be done by the coast guard. One thing, for example, search and rescue, is the responsibility of the maritime squadron of the Air Force of Malta, which fell under my command. So, particularly for the last three years of my time, I had the responsibility to to, to oversee. Obviously, in Malta, it's a very political issue as well, so I know the politics of migration. Prior to that, I spent a number of years working in Brussels, initially um, attached to foreign affairs, and then... uh, um then as mootas representative to the EU military committee so yes definitely my military background has come in very handy in trying to uh, concept of operations and in translating what was an idea because what Chris and Regina had um was an idea they listened to the pope the pope said very very clearly go and do something about it he also thought about this this idea of of scarto of almost feeling that we have nothing to do with this indifference indifference but i have done is then uh, translate that idea into reality and uh, there's a big difference when you do a search and rescue operation a migrant search and rescue operation it's not enough to have your heart in the right place it's important that is where you need from but then you need you need other things and in a way we're also concerned even if there is a surge of 10 other boats, but when you're doing a rescue of 300 people in those kind of situations, um, people with a good heart is not enough. And I say this with a lot of, of respect for the people. Um, it needs to be professional operation because you are dealing with people's lives and people can die out at sea just like that. I've seen people go under like stones because they have been out at sea for 48 hours. They have been, like sardines, sometimes standing up in the boat for 48 hours. The minute they hit the water, they just go under. And when you have 60, 70 people in the water at one time, and then and it's so easy for the boat, uh, for overloaded boats, to just flip over. You just go al- alongside trying to help, People get excited, a group moves from one side to the other.
2: Could you, um, you did a terrific overview presentation, but could you kind of walk through a rescue, a, t- a typical rescue, how you learn about a boat, what you do, who you encounter, what shape they're in, what you do during that 36 hours, kind of from start to finish? I yeah. think that'd be very interesting.
1: Too. Um, well, as I said, we're both reactive and proactive. Last year, um, we thought we would be more proactive than we were. Um in reality we were just going from one place to another following tasking by the Rome Rescue Coordination Center. We were almost going from one back to back from one operation um to the other. So typically um let's say okay, we get the call from the Rescue Coordination Center, they know where we are all the time. Our AIS is switched on all the time and our location shows on their screens all the time. Um whether we get a, a information of a boat in distress, or whether they get it, even if we get it, we send it straight away to them before we start doing anything about it, or rather concurrently. They come back to us, um normally they come back to us and say, okay, we have this information of a boat in distress, we think it is in, it is in such and such a location. If it depends on our location, um what we tend to do is set off the drone straight away um, because the drone is much faster, much quicker, can provide a bigger vision and a bigger perspective of what we see. Once we locate the boat, we straight away give that information and again send photos to the rescue coordination center and we said, okay, we think this is the boat. They try to compare notes to determine whether the boat we have found is the boat um, that had been reported to them. So in terms of um numbers maybe, whether it's a wooden boat, any distinctive features, whether it's a rubber boat. Uh, concurrently, if we're close, we deploy our rib. We always approach a vessel in distress or a vessel of interest, not with the big boat, but with, with a smaller rib. Psychologically, this is telling the people that are um on the migrant craft, okay, we're approaching with a small boat. So please, mm-hmm. you know that we can't take everyone, so please calm down. We're only here to take maybe a few, so we set the scene um, also in view of the expectations of the people on the boat. Um, on that boat, we always have a search and rescue specialist, a security specialist, more importantly we have the doctor, and usually we have the paramedic as well. So. All three people are doing an assessment.
2: And the translators? Do you need translators or something?
1: Um, uh, At that point, no, not really. Because, uh, first of all, all you need to do at that point is just sit down, sit down, sit down. That is all you need to do. When people come down and sit down, we start handing in life jackets. So someone is handing out life jackets straight away. The first thing we do is ensure that everyone has a life jacket. In the meantime... Um, someone is taking note, the size of the boat, the condition of the boat, if the boat was underway, what speed it was going, the direction, the sea state, um, how many people on the boat, how many men, men, women and children. The doctor is trying to assess the the, the health state. All that information is being gathered concurrently. Mm -hmm. That information is relayed back to the boat. That information then goes to the rescue coordination centre. Obviously, if we come across a boat um, where we realise that this boat, there's imminent danger to loss of life, boat is taking in water, then we don't discuss too much. We start acting upon it straight away. But that is, it makes sense, but there is also a legal obligation um, of the captain. So, not the rescue coordination centre now. The captain has a legal obligation to assist a boat in distress. Um, And we coordinate and talk to the Rescue Coordination Centre. The Rescue Coordination Centre might tell us, okay, there are a lot of people on that boat. The sea is calm. They're not apparently in distress now, but by virtue of the fact that the boat is overloaded, that is a boat in distress. However, we have a state vessel which is coming. Uh, Stay there until that boat comes, and we will take them on board. On other occasions, they say, okay, take them on board, and then they will tell us later where to disembark. Um last year I think we did nine rescue operations. I think six where we disembarked on Mare Nostrum boats on Italian state vessels. So people stayed on board. I think the least time we had people on board was I think three or four hours. But the rescue itself will take three or four, sometimes more hours because you ferry people with the ribs if it's more dangerous to deploy both ribs because otherwise you will not manage the flow of people on the boat. If you go alongside with the big boat, people will start jumping in the water trying to to get on the boat. So the rescue can take up to three, four, five hours. The longest the people stayed on board last year was thirty-six hours. The minute they come, they come On the boat, one by one, there is a security check. We pat them down. It's a reality out there, so we do find from time to time knives or things like that. We've never found any weapons, uh, any automatic weapons. So we remove remove those. Um, But again, there are never any issues. Um, Last year, we had someone straight away remotely taking the temperature. And then uh, we separate women and children in the lower deck, men in the upper deck. If we realize they're, fa- they're a family unit, we try to retain the family unit together, and then the, the, the doctors and the paramedics move in. So they see, they do a triage, see who need um, rescue most, and then there's someone else who is providing them with shoes, with clothes. Uh, some people are wet, some have uh, clothes wet with fuel, so there are there are burns, so we need to change clothes. They have... Uh, physiological needs. They need to go to the bathroom, they need to do this, they need to do that. Uh, we need to feed them. So it's an incredibly intensive uh, period where a lot of things are happening uh,
2: at one go. Could you could you speak to the smugglers, the traffickers? Kind of, what's your experience of them?
1: Um, many people have the impression that the smugglers and the traffickers are on the boat. This is not the case. Mm um this is not the case at all um i know italy last year has said that they have arrested um 130 traffickers i have yet to see a statistics which says how many of those 137 were arraigned the reality is this um and through my experience is that in the great majority of cases Those who, at a first glance, appear to be traffickers are simply people who have said, oh, there are 150 people on this boat, someone needs to take charge, someone needs to take control here, because otherwise we're all going to die. They might also be people who have had a bit of a background, maybe have have worked on on a fishing vessel or a trawler, so they know the sea a bit, so naturally, he comes across as the leader.
2: So the people driving them haven't been hired to do that?
1: No. Um, it could also be that uh, the traffickers know that one of the migrants themselves have, has a bit of a background. And, okay, maybe instead of $1,000, uh, um, he will pay $800, and he sort of takes charge a bit. There are instances where traffickers have been on board, but normally, um, these are on the much bigger boats and it is definitely,
2: um, the exception
1: rather than the rule.
2: And maybe could you talk a little bit more about the condition of the people when you pick them up?
1: Well, again, um, as a foundation, what we try to do is, uh, is assist these people in their first 12 hours from departure because, um, is mostly
2: men, men and women, children? I mean, what's the breakdown generally?
1: Well, it depends. Um, last year, the bulk of the people crossing were Syrians. The bulk of the people we we assisted were Syrians. Um, with the Syrians, you tend to find more women and more children, more family units. With the sub-Saharan Africans, um, the bulk would be uh, men, young males. Um however increasingly there's always even sub Saharan's always a percentage of women. I would say twenty to twenty five percent. And out of that there will be a percentage of pregnant women and and also um a number of um minors and children. Um so yes, it varies
2: from, from one thing to another. And, and the condition that they're in depends on how long they've been there? Yes, yeah.
1: the condition depends on how long they've been in.
2: Last year,
1: um, the people who were assisted had been out at sea for around about 12 hours, not more than 12 hours. So that means that we are anticipating problems and avoiding certain problems. Of course, you will find people who are suffering from TB a lot of scabies, people have a lot of petrol barns, people who are thirsty, um, some barn. however, um, they have been out at sea for 8, 9, 10, 12 hours. The problem is when people are out at sea for longer because there is a bigger, much bigger chance that these people are lost and they also try to intercept while it's daylight. They typically leave very early in the morning and um, naturally, when it's daylight and when they haven't left for very long, people are not panicking. The water they have would have been enough. The fuel they have would have been enough. However, when night sets in, it's much worse. They don't know where they're going. They get lost. One day's get lost, then they're out at sea more. When they're out at sea, they run out of water. When they run out of water, they drink seawater, and then it's a big problem.
2: Can you talk a little bit about some of the criticism that you get? Malta and the EU in general I mean it's rather amazing to me that you do get criticized but it happens, right? But
1: yes, um, of course um, I think we do acknowledge that uh, um, that uh, the issue of migration is multilayered um, there's a lot of concern there's a lot of uh, misinformation and there's a lot of sensationalism so yes, there is concern and we, I think we need to Acknowledge that concern and understand that concern and try to educate more than anything else. While we acknowledge that ours is not the solution, the solution is much bigger than this. We are sort of a band-aid, we're a stopgap solution, um, however this is what we can do. There are others who can, including other foundations, who can do a lot at the country of origin because I am personally convinced that if someone is happy at home, if someone can send his kids to school, if if someone has a job, if someone has food on the table, the great, great majority of people will not leave their homeland. So, I'm all for efforts to try to address the issue at source. That needs to continue to be done. I'm also all for efforts to address the situation and the places of uh, destination. So, we're all for initiatives to do integration, seriously. What we say, however, is while those two are very important, we're in the middle and everything that happens before and everything that happens after, if the individual dies at sea, then it's done, it's finished. There's nothing for him to go to and all that had been done before and after is useless. So, and one of the duties I have here and one of the reasons why I'm here and I've been, I spent two and a half days in Washington talking to a lot of people um, on the Hill is that, first of all, we agree that this is, Europe should take primacy here. However, we think it goes a bit beyond that. We think that what is happening in Syria, in Eritrea, in sub-Saharan Africa, in in Libya, and these people dying in the central Mediterranean in international waters should concern not only Europeans, it should concern the whole wide world. And this is why I'm in the U.S. rather than uh, than Indonesia, rather than Malaysia, rather than Canada. Not because those people, uh, I would not like those people to appreciate what what we are doing and the issue more than anything. But the ability of the U.S. to portray and put the issue at the top of people's agendas is there. I also think that, in a way, the U.S. has uh, the responsibility to, to discuss it even internally and to raise the profile. We want to raise the profile of the issue. And even if we raise the profile of the issue and people know about it more and people appreciate it more, hopefully we will inspire people to donate. We know that we cannot impose neither on people nor on government. So our policy has and will continue to be we are more about action than activism. We have gone out there and shown the world that if you want to do something, if you really want to save lives, I mean, we you can talk about it till kingdom come, or else, and that is important, very important, or else you can buy a boat and go out at sea.
2: Yeah, I, I say too. I think that, it's You say it's a band-aid or you're criticized as it being a band-aid, but the truth is it's it's the solution to those people at that time. Yes, it's the solution, yeah. you know I mean, that's the reality of it. And I wonder one final question, which was that speak a little bit more to what you think the overall solution is here now. I mean, I know it's the I know it's what's driving people to migrate. and but if you could talk a little bit when you talk to members of Congress, what you're telling them in terms of what the u s ought to be doing the EU ought to be doing, you know, engagement with, the, with sending states, whatever is going on in Libya in terms of the rule of law issues um. there. I mean, kind of talk a little bit more broadly. Obviously, you need support. You should get as much support as you need. But kind of the broader solutions to this. Uh, well, I would first like
1: to say that as a foundation, we are purposely myopic in a sense that the issue is so broad and so complex that we have purposely chosen to focus on one thing, on the immediate, which is to save lives. People are going through Libya because that is the only option they have, because that is where traffickers act with impunity. And that is the only option that they have to reach Europe. Rather than telling people what to do, all I think we should do as a foundation is recount what people tell us. Put a human face to what is too many a statistic.
0: For more information on the Migrant Offshore Aid Station, visit www.moas.eu And for more information from the Center for Migration Studies of New York, including research projects, publications, events, and video, visit us at cmsny.org.